You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In his Newbery award-winning novel, The Graveyard Book, Neil Gaiman introduces us to a band of wandering ghouls. They're about to whisk a sad little boy off to their city of Ghoulheim. As is common with ghouls in fiction, these fellows were once human. Now they've taken as their ghoul names the name of the corpse they first devoured. Gaiman describes them thus. Down the street and up the hill came the Duke of Westminster, the Honorable Archibald Fitzhugh, and the Bishop of Bath and Wales, slipping and bounding from shadow to shadow, lean and leathery, all sinews and cartilage, wearing raggedy clothes all a tatter, and they bounded and loped and skulked and leapfrogged over dustbins, keeping to the dark side of the hedges. They were small, like full-sized people who had shrunk in the sun, and they spoke to each other in undertones, saying things like, If your grace has any more blooming idea of where we is than us do, I'd be grateful if he'd say so. Otherwise, he should keep his big oval hole shut and... All I'm saying is, your worship, is that I knows there's a graveyard near here. I could smell it. And if you could smell it, then I should be able to smell it too, because I've got a better nose than you have, your grace. Later, the three faces staring into his could have been those of mummified humans, fleshless and dried. But their features were mobile and interested, mouths that grinned to reveal sharp, stained teeth, bright, beady eyes, clawed fingers that moved and tapped. From the weird tales of H.P. Lovecraft to the fictional worlds of Dungeons and Dragons, ghouls have been described in hundreds of ways in an ochre-tinted rainbow of words, yet one thing about ghouls is always the same. They're the kind of people that eat people. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Today's episode is hosted by myself, Blake Smith, Dr. Karen Stolzno, and a very special guest, one of my own Atlanta skeptics, friends, Adam Levenstein. In this episode, we're going to interview Carol Travis Hinnikoff. But first, 
Let's talk a little bit about ghouls. Ghouls have become a popular fictional monster, but before the tales of Lovecraft and his strange, twisted ghouls that gave up their humanity for some kind of degenerate form of immortality, there were ancient legends, Arabic legends, of ghouls who haunted caves and ruins in the desert and, of course, lived on human flesh. There are many good short stories about ghouls by Lovecraft, Robert Howard, and others. Uh, the Outsider and Pickman's model in particular come to mind. But ghouls are probably even more popular than you may realize. For example, the modern Romero-style zombie, which we've talked about previously on Monster Talk, has much more in common with a ghoul than a traditional Haitian type of zombie. In fact, before it became Night of the Living Dead, his famous film was called Night of the Ghouls. It might also surprise you to know that in some places people still fear ghouls. But, of course, one need not be a supernatural creature to be accurately called a ghoul. One need only consume human flesh. Of course, we also call people who eat people cannibals. And when I was doing research on this episode, the most highly recommended book on that topic was Dinner with a Cannibal. This is Carol's book, and it's one of the most fascinating I've read during my work on Monster Talk. And, of course, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Monster Talk. Monster Talk. So tonight we're talking with author Carol Travis Hinnikoff, who has written just an absolutely fascinating book called Dinner with a Cannibal. Uh, and this show is Monster Talk. And what we try to do on our show is tie in uh, monsters uh, with science as much as possible. And so the monster we were talking about is the ghoul, um, which can either be sort of a, a demon that eats people or in Western fiction, it's uh, not country Western fiction, but just Westernized fiction. It's a, uh, uh, a monster that is a human that becomes sort of degenerate, uh, but gets supernatural powers from eating human flesh. So that being said, I thought if we're going to look into cannibalism or, or humans that eat humans, uh, what good books are there? And your book was by far the most highly recommended. So that's how we found you. I never meant to write it, but I'm very glad you found it fascinating. The seven years I spent on it were probably the most fascinating research years of my entire life. It was amazing. Actually, come to write a book about cannibalism. I mean, that is a topic that most people consider not only a taboo as an action, but really as a topic to even discuss. Well, I agree with you, and if you told me ten years ago... I was going to write a book on cannibalism, I would have laughed heartily. Uh, my main field is paleoanthropology, and we know that the Neanderthals practice cannibalism. And a friend from Australia you know, gave me a fascinating book, and it talked about the foray of Papua New Guinea, who practiced Indo-cannibalism. That's when you eat of your dead. And they got what used to be called a spongiform encephalopathy, but now they're called prion diseases. Because of that tribe, we now found prions and understand the diseases, although we have no cures yet. So I hypothesized that the slow demise of the Neanderthal could have come about from them contacting a uh, prion disease and then slowly dying out from the eastern portions of Europe and Russia down to Portugal, which took about 5,000 years. So a bunch of professors were saying, well, that's really a great idea, you know, continue. 
And one night I went to bed and I thought, well, it's all working out very nicely, but I really don't know enough about cannibalism. And as one radio interviewer said, we all go to bed with thoughts like that. And uh, I started researching. And the first three months, I'd wake up at three going, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then I started waking up at three going, why? Because any investigative scientist that's what we want to know. Why? Why are you doing this? Why did you do this? How come it's every place I look? Uh, from the Bible to uh, fairy tales to the most ancient writings. Um, I just couldn't open a door, drawer, or cupboard. And there it was, sitting there again. Uh, and I soon learned that there is not one kind of cannibalism. And when I say kinds, by that I mean, do you eat the whole body? Do you just take a wee bit? Uh, and the rest of it deals with belief systems. Why are you doing this? And of course, the primary uh, cause of cannibalism is starvation, the live party on the, the mountains in the Andes and so forth. And by the way, they all came back much more religious than they were in uh, knowing that without the bodies of their friends, they would have all perished. Um, so it ended up Many of them likened it to the Last Supper. Um, so that's survival. And there are many people who will be screaming, I would never do it. I would never, ever, ever do it. But they've never been truly starving to death. And the chemical brain are going to change, and you probably will do it. There was one woman on the plane with a live party who refused to eat. And she was starving to death. And uh, then when that second snow slide happened, she perished in that. Um, but that's survival. And, and I truly, after seven years, I believe that it was starvation that started it amongst all the animals. A very important thing to know is that from bacteria in your own gut, your digestive system, who um, often dine on one another, uh, up to dinosaur, back to dinosaurs and up to chimpanzees. Uh, it's all over the animal kingdom. Of course, they don't put any taboo to it. Um, they do it for many reasons. The furtherance of their genes when they kill infants so the mother will come back into estrus. And so forth, it is all over the place. And it goes back probably to our very beginnings, and we're kind of growing out of it. I think most people on Earth find it repugnant and uh, something, quote-unquote, they would never do. But it is still being done. And until after World War II, there were people all over the globe that practiced cannibalism. But there was no one who'd ever gone and told them, well, we don't believe that way and you shouldn't do it. So, Carol, just as a foundational question, how do you define cannibalism within your work? Um, the ingestion of any part of a member of your own species. This is Adam. Uh, one thing I found interesting was the uh, pronghorn antelope which is herbivorous, it only eats vegetables, but it, it'll eat the, uh, its 
own placenta and uh, its offspring's uh, feces. Exactly. In, in some animals, in herbivores, they will still eat the placenta after giving birth. They will also eat the feces. Uh, I think it's mainly to uh, keep the predators at, at bay, but some researchers think that they get certain things out of the feces. And um, in my research, I found that to happen many times. Um, and to me, I, I like to approach any subject and learn all its foundations so that I can understand the more current history. And I think it's important for us to know, everybody to know, that um, it's all over the animal kingdom. In some species of shark, she will have up to five uh, fetuses within the womb, and the dominant one, by the time he exits, will have consumed one of the others. It's only been found in the last 10, 15 years. So it's, it's, it's in the realm of all life. And you just find it from the sea to the tops of mountains and birds and everything else. So it is not unlikely if you find it in chimpanzees and monkeys and so forth, then it shouldn't be that big of a surprise that we find it amongst mankind. Um, and, and speaking of animals, us mostly, but this is for any living thing. There are the four Fs, flee, fight, feed, and fornicate. Feed, it's the most prudent thing to do, and the main aim in life is to stay alive. Fight, if you must, you must or you're going to die. Feed, sustenance, you can't live without it. As to fornication, well, one of the strongest chemical needs of your body is to pass on your genes, and I'm sure that most uh, teenage boys would think it's the most important, but you make love last because you can make sure you're alive and have sustenance before you can procreate. So those four Fs dominate life. So that makes survival cannibalism very understandable. Um, but then there's exo. That's when you eat of your enemy, and most people who practice that believe that they can't truly exterminate their enemy unless they eat his body or part of his body. Indo-cannibalism is when you eat of your dead. And that usually goes with a lot of belief systems. These are used, it's usually amongst people who live in very small groups and they truly have a family bond you can't imagine. And, you know, who would put cannibalism with that? But the worry of South America until the missionaries and anybody else came and completely changed their life, and they've been mourning ever since. They truly believed that when one of their loved ones died, first of all, they hugged the corpse. It, it, it can get very gross, but it's only gross to us. It was not gross to them. They dearly loved these people, and they truly believed that unless they can cooked and consumed the body, 
that person couldn't go on to the other side. They would even shout lies at it and say, we don't like you, we hate you, you can't stay here, go away, to try and help them to the other side. And proof of the, how strong the belief is, is there was a woman, um, first of all, you should know that the Brazilians went in when they started really deforesting the Amazon. And the Wari is the only tribe ever found that practiced Indo and Exo. They treated the bodies of their enemies just like meat, but the bodies of their dead, it went on for days. And uh, they truly believed all this, and they lived by it and had for centuries. So some missionaries found this group and took them in and uh, were there in the jungles with them, and a teenage girl got very sick, and they took her down the river in a boat and took her to a small hospital, and she did pass away. And they buried her and gave her a full Christian burial. Well, at the time of uh, the uh, Beth Conklin's book um, about the, the worry, this mother was still mourning. She was still in heavy mourning because, to her, her daughter was trapped on the planet and couldn't go to the other side, and she simply couldn't get over her grieving. So if any of your your listeners do read the book, I think it explains it very well, but 99% of understanding the kinds of cannibalism that have taken place, there is always a reason behind it. It may be political. In the Congo, they ran out of meat and started eating the pygmies. Um, there are tragic stories within the last hundred years and even a few current of where it is really avenging or frightening your own people into doing what you're telling them to do. Because cannibalism, even in people who don't find it palaciously gross, um, it is still a huge, powerful weapon. But with most of the cannibalism I found around the globe, uh, and there is no continent, the Europeans did it all through the uh, Inquisition, but they didn't call it cannibalism, it was iatric, medicinal. Um, the people had belief systems, and that allowed them to do what they did. And they did not think it was horrible the way we do. Uh, it was part of their culture. I have to say that I, the book was really eye-opening in that in Western culture, especially here in America, there's a tendency to think of cannibalism as um, one of maybe two things, like the tribal, uh, that's a cannibal tribe, they're going to eat people when they show up, you know, killing missionaries or whatever. And then the other kind would be the psycho killer who's, uh, you know, has some sort of uh, mental pathology that's driving him to eat or her to eat. Uh, humans, and you make uh, it clear that there are, you know, a variety of cultural reasons why cannibalism might be part of the culture. Um, but I think one myth that you seem to have done a pretty good job of stepping on is the idea that in these cultures they simply think that eating their enemies is going to give them the enemy's power. I think the uh, I think it was a Maori uh, tribesman you talked to who said uh, that's 
well, basically that's BS. Uh, the reason we eat the brain and the heart is not to gain their strength and, and courage. It's because they taste great. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to tell you, he was just a fabulous man. I, uh, my late husband had purchased a Maori lentil, uh, a door uh, ornament over their doors, beautifully carved, and I'd always wanted to know all of the meanings of all of its swirls and this and that. So that chapter, Dinner with the Cannibal, is rather funny, but when I told him that there were people, even professors, that were saying that cannibalism never happened except in cases of extreme starvation, he just roared and said, someone ought to eat those fellows and they could take notes. <laughs> but he said, that's ridiculous, and told me about his great-grandfather and everything else, and he, you quoted him perfectly, and he said, we eat those parts because they're best. And uh, I come from the line of a master chef and have written cookbooks, and in fact, I know that sounds gross, but it helped me write the book, because I know how to dissect animals, and I know about what the, they call awful, but not felt the same way, which means all the innards and all, and that's where all your true vitamins and minerals are. The muscle meat is, yes, it'll certainly fill you up and give you some protein, but it has less to offer you and as far as health, meat-wise, than the other organs. And, um, you know, it's one of those things. Somebody writes it down a long time ago that they ate the heart to give them courage. Um, and it takes sometimes a long time to figure out that that's not necessarily so, or one Indian said it and nobody else did. Um, now, there is uh, the Dog Hamadi uh, religious texts that were found by some Bedouin farmers, and uh, that story is in Religious Acts, and that's quite a story, but at the end, uh, after finding the old manuscripts and the skeleton and the jars and all. Um, in the meantime, their father, who had worked for the Germans protecting some irrigation equipment, was slaughtered one night. And uh, after finding the uh, scrolls, uh, someone came to them and told them that the murderer of their father was down uh, sleeping by the road. And they took their fire-hardened shovels uh, down and they hacked the fellow to death and then they ritualistically uh, cut out his heart and partook of it to avenge their father and that was in 1945 and they did that because that was the way their people avenged a killing of their father. So, Carol, I wanted to ask you, it seems as though it's not merely lay people who believe that cannibalism would only be practiced uh, in instances of starvation, but it seems that scholars, there are some scholars who actually deny the existence of cannibalism. So why would academics deny that cannibalism has taken place historically for reasons other than starvation? You want me to be really honest? Yes. <laughs> yes. They did it. They did it for one it's what everyone would love to hear. Everybody would like to hear that. Mm -hmm. It was very, very politically correct, and it right. made the author an awful lot of money. Um, I'm not PC. I have 
so many friends of every color, every race, every creed, and I love them all. And one of the things I love about them the most are their differences. But there's something, and I've told this to everyone I've ever talked to about cannibalism, there is not a single person on this planet that doesn't have a cannibal in his closet. (laughs) Now, the last relative of yours that ate of human flesh may have been during World War II. It may have been 500 years ago. It may have been 1,000 years ago. It may have been 3,000 years ago. But we've all got cannibals in our closet. And for over 500 years, during the Inquisition, we didn't know what a germ was. I love it with little school children that Columbus, who never set a foot on U.S. soil, um, and Cortez and whoever they're claiming brought disease purposely over to kill Indians. Nobody knew what a germ was for 300 years after Columbus's death, so it's pretty idiotic to tell you, anyone, <laughs> that these fellows purposely brought disease over. And actually, uh, Cortez had, had gone down along African coast and brought some things over, and then there were things from Europe. Uh, but the Indians gave us some things back. But nevertheless, there's an awful lot of misinformation over there. And during the Inquisition, they didn't know about germs, and but they had doctors. And for a long time, they were shipping mummies from Egypt. And the word went out that a little bite of mummy uh, would cure your ills. And then that business must have fallen apart or they ran out of mummies lying around on the ground. And so the patients were demanding mummy because it made them better. And so they didn't kill anyone for this. But, you know, they were having wars and skirmishes. The princes were constantly battling each other. And they would go out and they would try to pick a young lad dead on the battlefield that they thought was a virgin because obviously his flesh was going to be the best. And they would cure it just like you'd cure a hand. And you went to the doctor, still call mummy. Um, he would give you a nicely wrapped little cube of quote-unquote ham. Now we know nowadays that the placebo effect works beautifully and most illnesses will cure you up all by themselves. Your body will run its course, fight it like crazy, and you will get better. Well, that made it look like the mummy was working. It's like people who want penicillin when they have a virus. The penicillin can't touch the virus, but they want it anyway. And so for 500 years, in fact, in a, I think it's 1903, apothecary from Germany, they still live mummy. And uh, no one ever referred to it as cannibalism. But if you're eating even a little cube of human flesh, that's cannibalism. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Uh, did, they, did they know it was cannibalism? Um, did they know what they were eating? Uh, I mean, for example, your, yes. your first human cannibal case was the Butcher Hanover, and you talk about benign cannibalism. Can you talk about that some? Yeah, well, I didn't do a lot on the serial killer cannibals because they represent, you know, a millionth one percent of all the people who practice cannibalism or had a single incident of cannibalism within their lifetime. Um, these guys are truly sick. They're totally psychotic. Uh, interestingly, in America at least, most of them were raised by very doting single mothers. Uh, great, many of them were good-looking, um, but they are psychologically and psychotically very sick. Um, we know all about them because what they do is so hellacious, and the poor victims die such a horrible death that you can't even think about it. And so they get all the notoriety. But on... If you go by numbers, they hardly are on the charts. They're just the most notorious. Um, The Butcher of Hanover was obviously a very sick little boy, and his father knew it. He tried to have him committed to an insane asylum, and a good German doctor said, no, no, he's just this, that, and the other thing. And then he was doing something else and got put in prison for a few years and when he came out he was ten times worse than before and he even served in the Prussian army and they said he was very diligent and so forth um, but your serial killer cannibals are uh, simply very sick and so I only tell you the one story in the book because they are real subject as far as I'm concerned yeah, and, and I'm talking less about serial killers and more about the idea of benign cannibalism. You know, I mean, I remember going to summer camp when I was a kid and all the campfire stories about people who were uh, fooled into eating other people. Um, there was a French movie, The Delicatessen, which involves uh, a butcher getting mysterious meat. Um, nobody knows how. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that, how, how often that happens? It's called benign cannibalism because the diner has no idea what he's eating. Um, There's also culinary cannibalism where you're eating human flesh simply because you like it. And that has happened uh, over many places of the planet, including spots in Europe and in China and in various other parts and in Africa. I know a minister who worked in Africa for a while, and uh, this is quite a long time ago, and he had uh, a fellow who helped him and so forth, 
and this fellow had uh, several slave girls and a couple of boys, and he knew that he'd been a cannibal. And one day, he just went out and took a young girl, teenager, and very quickly killed her, and then the missionary, when he uh, could manage some words a few days later, he said, why do you eat human flesh? There are animals all around here. You can, you're can, you a good hunter. You can easily get meat on your table, you know, anytime you want it. And the fellow looked at me and said, well, they're very plentiful and easy to catch. And that was his simple answer. And the, the minister was not kidding me. Uh, my Maori friend uh, is predominant in the chapter dinner of the cannibal. He told me some things that my editor cut out. He was a brilliant fellow, by the way. He uh, had a degree in psychology and spoke five languages fluently. He's the one who told me about the Maori in World War II, and very few came back, but uh, Rommel said if I'd had the Maoris on my side, I would have won. They were phenomenal fighters and bloodthirsty fighters. And, you know, in our discussion, he said, uh, you know, you people think it's terrible. We didn't. It was part of our culture. My husband ran a large medical center, which was benefited me in my research because I could call up people like the head of psychiatry and have them over for lunch to use them as a backboard and say, look, this is what I found. What do you think about this? What do you know? So I had the head of psychiatry over, and I said, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I want it from an expert. I said, if you're born into a tribe that tattoos their faces and kills and eats their enemies, and you put it up his hand, he said, stop, girl. You know the answer. If from the time you are in your mother's arms, he said, whatever you see, especially over and over again, is what you're going to grow up believing in and accepting. And if somebody comes in and says, you shouldn't do that, that's terrible, you think he's crazy. And that's, I mean, there's more than one instance that was actually uh, recorded in someone's notebook. But most cannibals, when we're told they couldn't do that, looked at the person and said, why not? We've always done this. Now, there were tribes and many tribes that only did it occasionally. And I did research enough back and to find that there were people who practiced cannibalism and then it kind of faded out. And then they'd go for maybe a year or something. Not, and then there'd be a drought or something. They'd get back into it. And a lot of people did it for belief systems. A lot of times it wasn't really hunger. There's still a tribe in New Guinea that decides, and this is really out to lunch, you're dying and you always disliked guy over there. So with your dying breath, you tell the witch doctor that so-and-so is the one who made you sick. Well, that makes him a witch. 
And all witches have to be eaten, and you know the rest of the story. I wanted to ask you, talk in the book about how uh, cannibalism is, has been outlawed in the past. You cite the case in Papua New Guinea where it was outlawed by the Australian government, I believe. How is something like that policed? How do they outlaw something like cannibalism? Uh, especially people who live out in the wilds and out in the open. Uh, you put a few of them in jail, and I want to tell you, it's... It's a much more horrible punishment than it would be in this country. It just wrecks the psyche completely. Um, A lot of the cannibal people that we found still practicing cannibalism were found in the 50s. That was after World War II. There were boys who'd gone all over the Pacific, and the lucky ones came back. And they went with the GI plan, and they got an education, and they went back and started studying. The Australians were heavy in World War II, and boys did the same. And they started really exploring sections of the earth that had had almost no exploration. And they found a lot of cannibalism and a lot of other things, and... You know, anyone who conquers, it doesn't have to be a European or a it can be one African nation or the other. Um, you put your belief systems onto them. This is the history of mankind. Um, so you have tribes and one tribe takes over the other and then they say, well, we don't do that, so you can't do that. And that's what... Uh, the Australians did in New Guinea. They said, you can't kill and eat people, and you can't eat of your dead. And um, now I have to tell you about the foray, which is I started with, which is how we found the prions and so forth and why I wrote the book and so forth. Those people obviously communicate quite well without speaking. And the people who study them were amazed. And I know one of the main anthropologists who works with them. In fact, she and her then-husband are the people who really came up with the realization that they'd gotten this uh, prion disease by eating of the dead. Uh, And they're just this very cohesive group but they're real thinkers. They're really smart. They had no written language or anything. But when, whereas some tribes fell apart because now you can't practice your cannibalism, you have to give up some of your old beliefs, and they kind of fall apart. You know, they go down and drink in the towns. But the foray listened to everything the white man said, started going down and working on the coffee plantations, talked the government into building a road up to their mountaintop village, and they are now fantastic coffee bean growers. So some people don't fall apart when somebody comes in and says, you can't eat of your dead. They say, well, let's see what you do. Good, I'm becoming a businessman. <laughs> and that is what they've done. So they've gone from human beans to coffee beans? No. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes, I did. <laughs> I, I'm going to say a naughty word, but so in New Guinea, there's an old saying that uh, the two cannibalistic tribes that lived on different ridges and some of those corrugated mountains, uh, with the, when the wind is right, your voice will carry over the the huge crevice in the, in the, the earth between you. And uh, the cannibal taunt is, I ate your brother yesterday, I will shit him out tomorrow. And oh. um, that has been known to do... Yep, bleep, bleep. (laughs) 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 But uh, as with... Oh, there's something I was thinking about today. Uh, You know, there is no law against walking to the moon. No one has ever written a law about anything that wasn't done. Uh, I don't know if it's still there, but there was a law on the books in Boston that it was against the law to smooch and make love to your girlfriend on a park bench. Okay? Well, guess why they made the law? <laughs> so, right. And um, I'm sure Karen will know that in all languages, uh, cannibal is a very recently coined word, but all people have a term for cannibalism, and it's usually man-eater or men who eat of men. It's always eating men. Well, you wouldn't have a word for it if you didn't know about it or you didn't practice it. Um, And Aaron, in his book, says, well, it's just a taunt. Well, it isn't. You have to go back linguistically and realize that nobody would have the term man-eater, and it's all over the globe. Uh, all the languages have some terminology for cannibalism. I, I didn't actually know that. I, I, I don't know if it would be universal, but uh, if there, there might be similar phrases that mean slightly different things as well. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, Christy Turner, who did all the work and found uh, 27 sites of cannibalism, and I, I want to preface that by saying that all these sites fall between 900 A.D., in 1400 AD. And during that time, there were hellacious droughts. People were really starving to death. It was terrible. And there was huge brouhaha's in Mexico, both political, tribal, and they were suffering from the drought also. So there are two kinds of sites, and some are very obvious, and that's too long a discussion, but there are ways you can tell that it's uh, survival and they're starving to death. And the others are Kivas broken into by raiding parties. And the reason we know they came up from the south is because of some of the art on pot shards that they brought up and different uh, things they brought up that didn't exist in the United States area at the time. And those were, they would burst into the Kivas and kill everyone in it. And some anthros trying to be very nice said, well, they, the thousands of pieces of bone were nothing but uh, the annihilation of witches. And I won't go into that discussion, but the discussion was ended when they found a coprolite. That's a, a dried feces, um, an animal or a human. Well, in your muscle meat, you have myoglobin. No other animal has myoglobin in his muscle and the feces was full of myoglobin. 
So the witches had to go bye-bye, and cannibalism had to step in. But um, Christy Turner, he worked with me through a lot of this book. But his main praise for me was, he said, you look for it in places I never even thought to look. I said, yeah, and I found it. So anyway, I had a lot of fabulous professors help me on this book. Well, going back to the question of witchcraft, I remember reading in a uh, certain magazine an article about something that really just scared the hell out of me, which is albinos in Africa are being hunted uh, so people can eat them and apparently gain some sort of magic. Have you been following that at all? Yes, I have, and it's very tragic, and it's uh, the thought is very old, very old. Um there's more cannibalism going on in the world today than people think. But compared to a century ago, two centuries ago, it's diminished greatly, uh, tremendously. Um, but it still goes on, and all belief systems are really hard to erase. Um, and especially if you're living under, you know, different conditions. One thing I would like to tell your listeners, if they think cannibalism is is uh, centered in certain parts of the world and not others, it's absolutely false. It's been pole to pole around the equator and you name it, um, from South America, Central America, uh, North America, all over Asia, all over Polynesia. Africa and, as I explained to you, Russia, um, Europe, and uh, in Russia, too, and during World War II, nobody talks about it, but some of the uh, camps uh, for prisoners and all, and they didn't feed them, and uh, nobody, of course, even people who came out of those camps would talk about it. Um, I searched for so long and so hard, and Wonderful people said, have you looked here and looked there? And there have been people who wrote about And uh, people, I mean, World War II put people into absolutely horrible situations. And cannibalism did happen. And we tend to think about cannibalism historically as something that happened in the past that primitive people have done, uh, and then we've just talked about these cases recently in parts of Africa. Uh, is cannibalism going on today in other parts of the world? Well, in New Guinea there are, especially the guys who go after those witches that made somebody sick. The, the chapters get a little more grisly as as you reach the end of the book, although I hope my uh, uh, It's a Wrap film at 11 last chapter, I think sums it up and more or less says, look, we we go to the moon, we go into outer space, we build marvelous things, we write wonderful words, we create music and art and all these things, and then there's a very, very dark side of this, too. Um, but there have been things that happened in China uh, when Mao was in office, shall we say, so to speak. Um, and it was in a southern province. 
and the people who partook of it um, were are genetically related to people who practice cannibalism um, frequently and habitually in many years past. And when Mao gave dictatorship to the masses, what he was saying, I don't want to put the people who don't agree with me in jail or kill them. What these people did was, instead of just bringing Mr. Yi up because he didn't believe in Mao's words and executing him, uh, they started eating of the bodies. And at first they just took the heart or whatever, the liver, and then eventually uh, they were killing people sometimes because it was someone in town they didn't like or they were jealous of. And then they would cut up and uh, everybody would fight over the pieces and it got very grisly and very ugly. Now, what the author found uh, was that he was researching this after the fact. But when he talked to people who uh, he knew absolutely, and in fact they admitted it, that they had eaten of human flesh, there was absolutely no remorse. They said, well, they didn't believe as they should have. We were helping our country rid it of terrible people. So we didn't do anything wrong. That bothered him, the author, more, and it would have me too, it bothered him more than the actual eating of the flesh after they killed him. So it, it does go on. It's gone on in wars in uh, Africa. Uh, some African warlords have demanded that their arms partake of flesh because it so scares the other people that they will then just toe the line, line up and do whatever the dictator says. So it's often been used as a weapon, a threat. Um, and in the case of China in the southern province, they were literally going back to their past. Well, we've talked about a lot of stuff, um, but your book is full of even more information. So uh, I, I'm going to encourage the readers to buy a copy. Uh, poor Amazon is going to get worn out. <laughs> but uh, the uh, I think... One thing we need to hit on before uh, we end this is um, the role of religion and, and, and metaphorical cannibalism. That you talk about communion uh, in Christian church, and even uh, coming up from a Christian family, uh, we I never thought about communion as being an act of cannibalism. But you know, I got older, make friends in college, and the next thing I know. You know, I'm hearing that all the time, you know, talking about the transubstantiation being a kind of cannibalism. What's the role there? What what does this sort of metaphorical cannibalism have to do with uh, cultural uh, acceptance of cannibalism or or, or cannibalism in general? What, What do you think that tie is? Well, I wasn't baptized Catholic, but even in my Protestant church, when I was a little girl, I took communion, and I... Never, ever, I didn't really know what cannibalism was, to tell you the truth. I don't, I was brought up in a more naive age, and that's why I'm still studying. Um, and I had no idea about that. But, uh, 
cannibalism in the Old Testament, where God actually warns his people if they don't obey him, they're going to go to war against his wishes, and they're going to end eating their children. Uh, that's just a warning, but then in another book, uh, that's exactly what happens. We went to lunch, and I mentioned a certain passage in the Bible. And he, I said, you know it? And he said, well, of course I know it. I said, I've read it 20 times, and I only can get one thing out of it. He said, Carol, don't act like a dumb blonde to me. He said, of course it, that's what it says. He said, well, what do you do with that passage? He said, we don't read it in church. But it does refer to uh, cannibalism. Uh, because in it, Christ ends up saying, your forefathers are dead, but he who eateth of my flesh and drinketh of my blood shall have everlasting life. They're dead, but if you eateth and drinketh of me, you'll have everlasting life. Um, that became metaphorical. And when I first heard about it, I didn't think about cannibalism. I thought about ingesting Christ's wisdom and so forth. And I think, I don't think, I can't, I know of no Catholics who think cannibalistic when they take the Eucharist. You know, it's funny, I was telling Blake I grew up Jewish and, uh, and communion freaked me the crap out. I mean, it was just something I thought was incredibly weird, the idea of ingesting someone's body into you. Uh, but I'm afraid we're apparently running out of time, so i got to ask you, what is your favorite monster? My favorite monster? We ask this of all our guests. That's subconscious. <laughs> no, actually, my favorite monster is probably uh, Godzilla. Awesome. I like you already. <laughs> That's one of my son's favorites. <laughs> well, if you're going to be a monster, you got to be fire-breathing and be able to step on tall buildings and everything else. And I, I, I just love what the Japanese did with that. And at the same time, when I really watched again later and did some reading, they were psychologically trying to get over all their pain in World War II, and uh, they did it well. They I think so. Well. I think so. It, it's, uh, yeah, they, they, they covered that. I mean, it's a lot more than just a giant, you know, monster stomping on buildings. Uh, it, it serves... No, he, he's, he's after revenge and healing and making the world right again. <laughs> Subliminally. Not, he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to be doing that, but he's He's, uh, you know, he's dumb, but he's got a good heart. <laughs> Atomic good, right? <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Is, is thank there, you. Is there anything else you want our uh, re listeners to uh, know you're working on or that we should link to? Um. You can go all lowercase, string it all together, no spaces. Just type in dinnerwithacannibal.com. And Dinner with a Cannibal will tell you all about the book. You can buy it through there, and it'll tell you a little bit more about the Wacko Blonde I am and, and the other books I've done and so forth. Um, the only thing I'd say to your listeners is I know we covered a lot of territory, but 
having read the book, you know, we just kind of skimmed oh, a couple of miles. Right. We, 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 yeah, we barely unskinned it. There's still a whole body there to eat, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of meals in there yet yeah. to digest. <laughs> Monster Talk. Today's episode of Monster Talk was brought to you with the very generous support of listener Robert Smith. If you'd like to contribute to Monster Talk and have your name spoken on the show, please go to monstertalk.org and click the donate button. Monster Talk is produced with the help of Skeptic Magazine. Today's episode discussed ghouls and cannibalism with the author of Dinner with a Cannibal, Carol Travis Hennikoff. The show was hosted by myself, Blake Smith, Dr. Karen Stolzno, and Adam Levenstein. Intro music was by Symbian Project and was used by permission. The Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.